Welcome to The Loop with Stan Guthrie. As an author and communicator, Stan offers a critical and often humorous look at the day's issues, all from a distinctly Christian perspective. From his home studio in Chicagoland, where it snows far too often for his tastes, Stan cheerfully takes on all comers in a culture that is losing its mind without losing his. And now, here is Stan Guthrie. I'm here with my friend Doug LeBlanc. He writes for the Living Church. Doug and I worked for a number of years at Christianity Today. Today we're going to look at a new book by John Blake, the CNN reporter. It's called More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. That is uh, quite a topic. I just finished the book. Doug, why don't you tell me why you suggested this one? I suggested it because I had read an excerpt from this book, and it was specifically about when John Blake first met his mother. And I found that excerpt really moving, and I expected the rest of the book would be similar, although, of course, the whole book could not be equally um, dramatic as that particular meeting with his mom. I think the book mostly delivered on that hunch that I'm glad to have read it. Yeah, John Blake is, I guess for uh, our listeners who don't really know much about him, he's he's sort of the uh, race analyst and reporter at CNN. He's been writing about these kinds of issues for a long time. I guess the, the interesting thing about this book is it didn't really go in a straight line from a lot of the race-based discussions that we hear today because his mother was white, his father was black, and... He had a lot of interesting things happen to him, Uh, not all of them good, of course, growing up in West Baltimore, which is an economically challenged area, shall we say. It was the inspiration for the television show The Wire back in the early 2000s, which dealt a lot with drug dealing and all kinds of sin and dysfunction. When I was reading the book, I think I understood better than I have before how living in that kind of situation with a father who's who's there but he's absent a lot and basically a missing mother for most of his childhood how that can affect a person how it can affect your thinking about not only yourself but about other people tell me some of your opening thoughts about the book well it struck me that much of the uh, suffering that john blake endures in this story is in black contexts i mean his father works in the merchant marine so he's always going off to see the world and he leaves john and his younger brother pat with a woman they call her aunt but she's basically just a woman who runs childcare for for her benefit financially and expects the kids to stay in a basement and to be quiet and and to not complicate her life at all much of the white racism or suffering that he describes seems to be less direct. It's things he hears about, such as one time his father went to the home of his mother to visit her, and her father ran him away with a typical racial invective and called the police. And it was an ugly encounter, to be sure. But it didn't really affect John Blake directly. I mean, it, it affected his father, and of course he felt sadness for his father. 
But my other big impression, though, is that this book is endorsed by Robin D'Angelo. And at one point, he praises both Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi as giants in the field of, of racial understanding. I think John Blake contributes more to the field of racial understanding than both of those people, mostly because he has an element of grace that I think is missing from their theories. For them, it's all about, yeah, racism is this uh, persistent evil and you must choose sides and either you're a racist or an anti-racist and there is no middle ground in a sense. You can't just be, uh, I guess, you know, responsible for your own choices. You have to take a stand against all the choices made by all the people of your skin color in the past, you know, it seems like. Blake offers a less hysterical understanding of history and of culture, I think. As I read the book, I wasn't expecting a conversion story, and that's pretty much what I got. He talked about his encounters with evangelical Christians of all races. He, he talks about very warmly about a white pastor who was pastoring an interracial church. I think that's where a lot of the grace comes in, that there's some gospel there. You know, it's, it's not just perfunctory. He's really struggling with it. One of the things that I saw that he struggled with was the whole area of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. He had real trouble forgiving the father of his mother, who he just dismissed out of hand as a racist, didn't want to know anything about him. I mean, he was gone by this time. He held that against him. He He was angry at his mother for never showing up. He was angry at his Aunt Mary, because she apparently didn't show up, and then when she tried to explain herself, he wouldn't accept it. So there was there was a lot of hardness of heart I, I saw in his story that, thankfully, this book worked through, and you know he was transparent enough to talk about that and talk about the growth in his own beliefs. I, you know, I don't think that we would agree eye to eye about every issue of rice. There's there's no way we could because I didn't live his experience. But I I do think that there was some real growth there, some real poignant moments. I think a lot of people who are kind of looking at the clashes and the uh, tumult that we see in our society now over race could really benefit from this because it at least has a starting point where we can discuss things as human beings, as fellow human beings. And one of his insights that I think, well, he might have taken it a little too far at the end is just getting to know people of other races and, and understanding them and seeing them as real people and not just as caricatures. His story reminds me of the great poem, The Hound of Heaven, how at every stage, it seems like, in his life, Christ is present in some way. So, for instance, in his childhood, there's this character who comes by the daycare center, and at night, he sits alone in the kitchen And the only song he sings is, I Surrender All. And John listens in on him doing that singing. And he writes as though he he thinks this character, Mr. Bill, is aware that he's there. And just sits and lets him observe what he's doing. And then in college, he's exposed to evangelicals as a student at Howard University, the elite school in Washington for black students and eventually becomes a Christian there. And as you say, he's he's very honest about his struggles, especially with forgiveness. But it seems like once he becomes aware of more information, then he's willing and able to extend grace 
So, for instance, his mother is afflicted with a mental illness, and that's the main reason she's not available to him through most of his life. But he eventually finds her, and he visits her regularly in the nursing home, and a very clear affection develops. He's able to forgive Aunt Mary when he finally realizes that she was extending the sort of apology he was looking for all along for her past alienation from him. He was too stubborn to see it for years. Yeah, yeah, and it's to his credit that he admits that. I guess I would emphasize the grace he is able to extend forgiveness. And then once he's done that, of course, it just kind of clears the field entirely, and he can build an all-new relationship with uh, the person he wasn't extending forgiveness to. I think most dramatically, he's able to forgive his mother's father. And that is a fascinating thing because even after the man has died, he seems to appear as something of a specter or a ghost in the bedroom that John Blake has. And he's married by this point. And his wife sees the ghost and she keeps trying to get him to wake him up to tell him about it. And he sleeps through the whole thing. But he eventually seeks counsel about this and asks a wise Christian, what can I do? And the man urges him to pray for the grandfather. There's a beautiful moment where John and his wife kneel at their bed. And as he's praying, he speaks to his grandfather, tells him he forgives him, assures him that he's looking out for his mom. And he says, I want you to be in peace uh, to his grandfather. That is such a pure prayer. I think if any of us are struggling with forgiving someone, if we can pray that for them, we're, I think, more than halfway home on forgiving them. One of the things he was looking for, really, as a young child, was relationship, right? His, mm. he, mm-hmm. he, he was struggling with his own father because he was always going off to the Merchant Marines, and, and therefore he would go to this uh, woman who, who, as you said, was called Aunt, Aunt Fanny, who was really mm-hmm. a cold person, didn't care about him at all, didn't care about his brother. But there was a scene when he was with Aunt Fanny where he often got thirsty at night and he was afraid to tell her because she would probably just yell at him or whatever. That was certainly his impression. And so he would just sneak into the bathroom and drink right out of the toilet. And he found out later, I think years later, from his younger brother that he was doing the same thing. I mean, how degrading and, you know, it's just sort of a picture of the dysfunctional and sad times during his upbringing that he had to deal with and no wonder he might have uh, trouble trusting people or forgiving them he was looking for relationship and i think that's what it is a subtitle of this book is what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew yes it was about learning about her and eventually relating with her but i think it was him relating with you know everybody in his life but you know by the end there he he had, you know, wonderful relationships. He was not only married, he, he was in love with his aunt, with his brother, with other brothers. I mean, they had all kind of come together around his mother. And one insight that I hasten to mention here is he said he thinks more racial progress is possible through relationships than through just gaining knowledge about it. He thinks as we get to know each other, as we truly integrate, as we you know, rub shoulders with people who are different than we are. 
the racism will go down. And he said that was particularly true. There was a model for that when his father was with the Merchant Marines because ships during wartime, whites and blacks were together and they had to rely on each other. And therefore, they, at least on the ship, treated one another as equals, as friends. I think that's what he was starting to discover in his own life, that people are people. You have to see them for who they are and beyond the racial categories. I've sat through a few anti-racism sessions in my life, mostly through the Episcopal Church, but one time through an event uh, in Kansas City, sponsored by an Eastern Orthodox Church. And so often, these kinds of meetings seem to work from an assumption that racism is just a matter of being uninformed, and that if you're taught enough, you'll suddenly come to your senses Either that or it becomes something almost like a struggle session for Maoism, you know, that, you know, you're expected to, especially as a white person, confess to some act of racism in your past. And God help you if you honestly answer that and say, yes, I was a racist. I can certainly think of racist things I did as a child. I've confessed to those things in meetings like this. But typically when you confess, some other white person usually from a state that wasn't integrated at all, will start hectoring you about this and treating you like some kind of pariah because you committed a sin at this point in your life. I've been in meetings where a white person will say, I've never had a racist thought in my life. And this is coming from a liberal or left-wing anti-racist perspective. I can only say if you've never had a racist thought in your life, it's probably because you grew up in a culture that was so homogeneous that made it a lot easier not to have a racist thought. The key thing for me is that your racism is not the unforgivable sin and that as with all sin, we can confess it and be forgiven. And certainly if we have access to the people who have been the victims of our racism, we can make things right with them or at least try to and see what happens. I think you know, a lot of the best relationship work will simply happen from a grassroots level, from an individual level of getting to, to know your neighbor and not being compelled to do this by some sort of workshop activity or uh, sensitivity training or anything like that. It kind of goes both ways. Hmm. He was, mm-hmm. he was uh, confessing his own sin of uh, racially profiling a guy at a hardware store um, mm-hmm. There was a black a person behind the counter and a white person. He needed something for his garden. I can't remember what. And uh, he just naturally went to, to the white guy, and it turned out that the advice he got was wrong, and it kind of messed things up. And he had to go back, and, and I think the, the black guy fixed it. And he, he confessed in this book that he was profiling the black guy. And in, this is after writing about racial issues for decades. So he knows mm-hmm. that it's a very easy sin to fall into that, You know, all the book learning in the world or all the struggle sessions in the world aren't going to take that away. And I think he would say Christian faith leavened with good relationships with one another are probably the way forward. Tell me, Doug, where do we go from here? I mean, you know probably better than I do some of the approaches that we're doing, the anti-racism and that kind of thing that I think are almost Marxist in the way they're handled that we have oppressor groups and, and, and victim groups. And until we all confess our whiteness or you know structural racism, there'll never be a way forward. I don't agree with that. 
I think that we do live in a country that's not perfect, but we're striving to become more perfect. We need to assist one another, but we also need to take personal responsibility. I think of my own area of Chicago. Now, I'm in a suburb, so, you know, there's only so much I've seen firsthand. But, you know, a lot of the racism I see is coming from the uh, progressive leaders of that city. I just saw a statistic where only 0.4% of black students are exceeding standards in math. And the new mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson, has been bought and paid for by the Chicago Teachers Union, which has been really running things for a number of years now, and the educational standards only go down. And I wonder how in the world are all these black young people actually going to be able to have the kind of life that John Blake had when they have no shot almost at a decent education and they are just indoctrinated with anti-racist stuff when it's black leaders who are really doing things to cement their own power and keep the kids down, keep them ignorant. So I don't know what to do about that. John Blake, whenever there was a problem in this book with his neighborhood or something, he would blame the whites for not doing something. And maybe they could have done more. I'm looking at black power structures in the city of Chicago that are keeping people poor and ignorant. I mean, what do we do? How do we move forward? Well, I'm, I guess I'm a great believer that the only real change we can make happen as individuals is at the individual level. I have found that in my daily life, that if I come across someone and live by the saying of King, Martin Luther King, that we judge other people by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. I just take the the part about not judging them by the color of their skin as a starting point so that you're relating to a person with whatever needs. I mean, I'm thinking of two cases that were in recent years in my life. One time I noticed a guy in a parking lot. It was a small parking lot, so it was easier to relate to him, but he clearly needed a jump. And I offered him a jump, even though I did not have battery cables. <laughs> and I told him that. <laughs> but, um, you know, basically making it clear my car battery was available if he had cables. You could just feel the goodwill that generated. In another case, I came across a guy outside a grocery store. And at first I just assumed he was panhandling. And I told him I didn't have any cash and I didn't. But I, I felt a, an inclination to listen to him. And he talked about being a, on long-term treatment for cancer. You know, you could even see the little port in his arm for the uh, chemotherapy. And that ended with me praying for him aloud on the spot. And I always think of that encounter with great fondness. And I think that worked out well. But I guess in a more lasting way, we can look to any people who live near us or to anyone who might be in the church that we attend and try to build a relationship there. I guess I'm just really pessimistic that you can make a great deal of progress as a group of people, you know, grouped together by whatever skin color you've inherited from history. In the church circles I've been in, there's a lot of talk about basically destroying racism 
And I, I think that's hopelessly naive. I mean, it's like saying we're going to destroy lust or we're going to destroy <laughs> gluttony. It's simply not possible. It's part of original sin. But we can recognize it as part of, of original sin, recognize it as sin that may still affect our thinking or our behavior, even if it's something we don't even consciously think about, but do. I remember one time I was in a parking lot in Baton Rouge, again, a parking lot. In this case, I was dropping off recycling boxes in recycling containers, and two black guys approached me kind of quickly, and they could tell by the way I responded or greeted them that, that I was scared of them. It was a source of shame for me because they intended me no harm, and it became very clear very early that they intended me no harm. But I guess, you know, that's kind of what you're, what you take in almost with your mother's milk when you grow up in a society or in a, a culture, in this case in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that had a long history of Jim Crow and, and slavery, if you get down to it. Right. I mean, that's not to say Baton Rouge was a horrible place, but it did struggle with that disability, you could say. Uh-huh. Would you mind talking about the time you, you told me about this when we both worked at CT when you got on the Metro train and you missed your stop? Yeah, that was a great experience, uh, all things considered, because it was on, I think, the 4th of July weekend. We were approaching it, and a lot of people were going into the city. And I happened to be doing kind of a reverse commute where I would go out on the train to Wheaton to then go a little bit north into Carroll Stream to work at CT. So I'm coming back to Oak Park which is a western suburb right on the edge of Chicago. And I couldn't get off the train because it was so crowded and I wasn't assertive enough to push my way through. But we went to the next exit and a fellow, he's probably 10 years younger than me, and he was on the train pretty often and and usually dressed more professionally than I was. You know, I think he wore a um, coat and tie regularly. He helped me figure out how to get back home and walked with me until we had to separate. He told me about how he was sometimes being harassed and I think even punched for trying to be a professional and trying to improve his life. You know, I guess it was, this may be my projecting onto it in my interpretation, but I, I think it's one of those cases where, you know, if you talk with a standard English or a broadcasting voice, you know, you're accused of talking like a white person instead of talking with dialect. And I wish I had thought you know, to get that fellow's name or card or something. I, I would have liked to have stayed in touch with him. He was a black guy, right? Yeah, he yeah. saw you get off the train at Kedzie, which is, I guess, the first or one of the first stops in mm-hmm. Chicago. It was not a good area. It doesn't matter what the race. It just was a dangerous area. He was not going to get off, but he got off. Hmm. He, he got you... I don't know, he directed you to a safer area or got you back on the train or something, right? Yeah, I think he just gave me verbal instructions on the best way to get back on the train from the same station, basically, because I think we were too far away from any other station. Hmm. I may have just even got on to a CTA train to get home faster. I think you remember the incident better than I do to some extent, (laughs) but I do remember the grace in that interaction he helped me far more than he had to i could just imagine you kind of wandering around in a 
dangerous neighborhood. And I'm, <laughs> I, I, oh, was, no, I, I was concerned for you even after the fact. So. Yeah, well, I was enough of a coward. I would have tried to resist making it worse uh, because mm-hmm. I, I had some sense that I was in danger. But he heightened my awareness. Yeah, so. you know, that's one of the, the best things you can do for another person is allow them to help you. Mm. Sometimes we don't do that. We think that because of our pride or, or whatever, we don't want to accept help. And mm. I, I think that's very healthy, especially in today's fraught times when, you know, if we're urged to do something, it's always to do something for the African-American, for the black person, by the white mm. person. Because somehow we still have the power, we still have the agency, and they don't. And I think we all have a certain amount of agency because we're all created in the image of God. And I think it's wonderful that you were on the receiving end of help in that way. And maybe that's a way forward too. We allow other people to help us and, you know, of whatever race we are, because we all need help from time to time. I would put it in terms of uh, making ourselves vulnerable. And we do that when we confess any kind of racist things we've done in the past or more recently, depending on how afflicted we are with that particular part of original sin. I mean, most of it in my case has been in in my childhood, but I'm sure I still respond to people in in, almost with what people call the lizard brain, you know, at times, but also making ourselves vulnerable by accepting help, by offering help, simply by loving our neighbor one person at a time. And God is in that. My big hope for John Blake is that he might shift from covering race to being a religion writer, mm. CNN has shown, at least in, through its website, a certain awareness of the importance of religion. It's usually had at least one person covering religion with some frequency. And I think John Blake could do that very well. And I, it would shift his attention from a never-ending problem to writing about people who are solving that problem, or at least addressing that problem, without making that their entire identity. Their identity is in their faith or in their relationship with Christ, specifically for Christians. And addressing racism is part of what they do, along with addressing all seven of the deadly sins. Amen. I think that's a, that's a great place to end this. Appreciate your time, Doug. Always happy to talk. Thanks, Stan. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on The Loop with Stan Guthrie.